1: Welcome to Politics Weekly Extra. I'm Jonathan Friedland. Joe Biden, as we've said often on this podcast, has a big agenda and big ambitions. The trouble is, two people stand in his way. They're not Republicans, they're Democrats, members of his own party. One is a man from West Virginia, the other is a woman from Arizona. And between them, they hold the fate of the Biden presidency and whether or not it will be able to achieve almost anything in their hands. Who are these two people? That's what we're talking about this week on the podcast. And to do it, I spoke to Sarah Binder. She's Professor of Political Science at George Washington University, a real expert on the Senate, and she's been on the podcast before. I began my conversation with Sarah by asking her about the first of these two people standing in Joe Biden's way. Who is Joe Manchin? Joe
0: Manchin is one of two senators uh, from West Virginia. Uh, he has been in the Senate since 2010. and he is the Democrat who comes from the reddest state. That is the state with the highest support for Donald Trump in the 2020 election. So he is a what we think of as a moderate Democrat. Uh, Does not have all that much in common with many of the uh, priorities of the Democratic Party, but he's still a Democrat. He still wears that Democratic label. Uh, He shows no interest in joining the Republican Party, but neither uh, does he want to sort of jump in uh, with his Democratic colleagues on some really high-profile issues.
1: And I mean, you described him as moderate, but I think in a lot plenty of other countries, particularly in Britain or in Europe, his positions on social questions would mark him out really as a conservative small C.:
0: Yeah, I think that is fair, certainly on I would say on economic. Issues. He's supportive of the Affordable Care Act. He voted for a nearly $2 trillion uh, pandemic relief bill at the beginning of the Congress that had a lot of government intervention uh, into housing markets and unemployment markets and so forth. But on these social issues, cultural issues, he's been a bit more circumspect for sure, uh, especially on voting rights, uh, among others. Uh, Does that make him a conservative? At the end of the day, if we look at his votes on the Senate floor, Senator Manchin probably has more in common with his average Democratic colleague than he has uh, with Republicans.
1: It's interesting you've put it that way, because you've talked about how he looks on the floor of the Senate. And you've written really interestingly recently about home style in politics. And explain to us what that is and how it might contrast with the Joe Mansion we see in Washington, D.C.
0: Right. It's sort of the image that legislators project back home. It also means how do they allocate their time? Where do they go in the state? What type of staff do they have? Uh, what issues do they champion? And how do they explain what they're doing in Washington to voters back home?
1: Well, you've got to tell us about his home style because it is very distinctive. How does Joe Manchin project himself at home, particularly in terms of how he advertises himself to voters come election time?
0: But sure. So in, in class, when I teach uh, legislative politics, I think the f- my most favourite thing to do is to show Joe Manchin campaign ads. I'm Joe Manchin. I approve this ad because I'll always defend West Virginia. Uh, some of my favorites back in 2010, when he was running, the Democrats uh, were wanting to pass a what we call cap and trade, uh, an effort to address global warming. And he takes a copy of the actual bill. He puts it on the target. He takes out his gun and he shoots it. And I'll take dead aim at the cap and trade bill because it's bad for West Virginia. Right. <laughs> so what do you learn first? Uh, most Democrats aren't shown in campaigns ads with guns. Right. Uh, so we learned something about uh, his protection of the Second Amendment of the Constitution. We learned something about his views about uh, uh, cap-and-trade. That is, from a state that relies on coal and the coal industry, uh, cap-and-trade was not very popular. I know how good we are. And I believe in you more than you believe in yourself i always do everything I can. There's one where he rides his Harley, his uh, motorcycle, through the West Virginia countryside. He says, I'm all about you, West Virginia. No matter what they're doing in Washington, everything I think is about uh, you and this beautiful state. One other element, you can see him attacking both political parties. At one point in my favorite ad, he says, yes, it's true. Washington
1: sucks. but
0: West Virginians don't give up. Both parties are to blame. That's his home style, Right. He opposes partisan agendas whether or not it's a Democratic agenda or a Republican agenda.
1: So that is Joe Manchin riding on his Harley carrying his gun there in West Virginia. And the other person is at the other end of the country in Arizona, Kristin Cinema, and she's a very, very different figure. Tell us who is Kristin Cinema.
0: Arizonans had a choice between two very different ways forward, one focused on fear and party politics, and one focused on Arizona. Senator Sinema had first served in the House. Uh, She came from a career as sort of a peacenik uh, on progressive causes in in Arizona. But once she came to the House and now in the Senate, she sort of strikes a somewhat moderate path, that is, on some issues such as whether or not the Senate and Democrats should get rid of the filibuster. Um, She keeps a somewhat uh, moderate stance, some distance from many of her more progressive Democratic colleagues.
1: Both are sending this message that they are their own person, that they're independent and don't take their orders from, from anybody, including the party whips. The reason why we're talking about them both, though, is that they do stand in the way of joe biden's agenda we've we've talked often on the podcast before about how the senate ended up in november 2020 or actually later because of those special elections but it ended up in a photo finish a dead heat of 50 50 on each side and thanks to the casting vote of the vice president kamala harris the democrats have the edge but it's unbelievably close so it means if you don't have a couple of uh democrats on board if you don't have your full 50 Joe Biden can lose bills that are promoting his agenda, and it comes to a head really in this thing, the filibuster. And we've got to we've got to talk about it, even though it can sound complicated to people outside. Explain to people from outside uh, the Capitol Hill what is the filibuster and why is it so important in terms of Joe Biden getting what he wants done.
0: So, in a usual or normal legislative body, right? take the House uh, in the U.S. Congress. Most bodies move by majority vote, meaning when it's time to cut off debate, there's a motion to cut cut off the debate and it takes a majority vote. In the Senate, they don't have that rule. They don't have the special rule that allows a majority to decide when enough is enough and to move to a vote. Instead, the Senate today has what we call cloture, And that's a rule that usually requires a supermajority to cut off debate. In fact, a supermajority of 60 votes. So what does that mean? It means unless you have 60 votes within your party and you're going to all stay on the same page, you cannot cut off debate in the Senate unless you attract some votes from the other party. That's the predicament here for the Biden administration and the Democrats' agenda. Which is, first of all, much of what they want to do, whether it is to set up a commission to uh, examine, investigate the violence of January 6th, or whether it is to uh, do something big on climate change or on voting rights or on immigration, they have to attract votes from the other party, from the Republicans. And that is proving quite difficult in a world of very high, what we call polarization and just sheer partisanship, right?
1: And a lot of Democrats are on board for getting rid of that hurdle, for filibuster reform that would say a normal majority, a simple majority of 50 plus one is enough. And then Joe Biden can get through his infrastructure bill or policing reform or voting rights protections uh, and even gun control, whatever it is. He could do that if he can get his 50 plus one. Lots of Democrats want to either scrap or reform the filibuster. But Joe Manchin, Kristen Sinema have been out there defending it. They don't want to scrap it and clear that hurdle out of Joe Biden's way. Why do they defend it, Sarah?
0: I think Manchin is the easiest to explain if we think about to get reelected in West Virginia. right, You you can't really be seen as a national uh, liberal Democrat. And so Manchin sees the filibuster as a way of making sure the Senate only acts when it can attract Republican votes under the assumption that measures that have Republican buy-in that he then votes for will be more popular back home in West Virginia, which is a very red state. Manchin and Cinema have come out quite vocally, but there are a couple other senators, Democratic senators, who are on the fence about nuking, as we say, or abolishing the legislative filibuster. But they don't really have to Make it make up their minds because Mansion and Cinema are taking all the heat uh, from the rest of the Democratic Party.
1: So I get your point about Mansion because he is there in a state that voted sixty eight percent for Donald Trump. It's basically a Republican state. I think he's the only statewide Democrat to hold, or the only Democrat to hold statewide office in West Virginia, you kind of understand the bind he's in. Kristen cinema baffles me because liberals around the country uh, did cheer when she made it into the Senate. Arizona is a kind of toss-up state. In the end, it was narrowly won by Joe Biden and the Democrats, what, what has she got to fear from, you know, coming across as an actual Democrat in a state that is, that did in the end reject Donald Trump and is, people always say, is going bluer because it's changing its demographic profile, lots of Latino voters. What, you know, in a way we get Joe Manchin's predicament, but what's Christian K- Sinema's problem?
0: Lawmakers in the US Congress tend to be somewhat risk averse. They always run scared, like they're going to lose their seats. And so a more cautious approach makes some sense, uh, given her reputation that that's um, how she sort of set out to be originally when she was in the House. Of course, there is another Democratic senator from Arizona, uh, Mark Kelly, uh, the former astronaut. Um, He's been cautious on some issues like immigration, which is of paramount importance uh, to a border state like Arizona. But I think he's letting cinema take the heat. Um, I don't think I've heard quite him say up or down whether or not he'd vote to abolish the filibuster either.
1: But the reason I think this has come to such a head, I mean, we've listed between us that all the different bills and programs that um, Joe Biden would like to get through these big ticket items that will be blocked if he has to somehow get 60 votes rather than just a simple majority of 50. But I think one of the reasons it's come to a head is particularly over... Democracy itself and I think there are probably two forms of that the one you've mentioned which is the vote to have a commission to investigate the attempted insurrection on January the 6th uh, and again you know Republicans said no to that and uh, uh, and therefore it couldn't happen because they just couldn't get there uh, they couldn't clear that hurdle of 60 but the other threat as a lot of Democrats would see are, are these efforts at re- voting reform or, or voter repression, I think a lot of Democrats would call it, going on at state level around the country. And Joe Biden's proposed a remedy for that, which would be thwarted if the filibuster stays in place. Tell us what that is, this proposed remedy.
0: So I, this is a great question. Uh, the, the For the People Act, which is uh, the underlying bill that's at issue here, it's really quite expansive, right? It does everything about addressing access to the ballot, meaning where and when can you vote earlier, what can you do for absentee ballots or vote by mail, what the states can do, it limits and restricts uh, voting uh, in in that way. It also reduces, supposed to reduce the influence of big money uh, in politics. It has ethics rules for public servants. There's other sort of anti-corruption measures in it. It really is quite expansive. Uh, And so the bill will still go to the floor. There'll be an attempt to call it up. It will get filibustered. It will be interesting whether or not Joe Manchin will vote, as we call for cloture, that is to cut off debate, to put the bill onto the floor. But the prospects for enactment are close to zero.
1: Yeah, I mean, you can see why Democrats sort of jumping up and down, hopping mad at this, because the idea that Joe Manchin is making the test whether Republicans come on board for a bill that would stop Republicans helping themselves in elections around the country. You know, these various voter reform or voter repression bills that are going through various Republican held states around the country are designed to shrink Democratic turnout and boost Republican uh, advantages in those state elections. So, of course, you're not going to get Republican allies in a measure to prevent that. You can see, I think, why Democrats are hopping mad. But I mean, the surprise perhaps a bit is that there is, according to some reporting, a glimmer of of, of light, people think, potentially with Joe Manchin because he said he's open to hear some of the arguments and the, I think he had a meeting with the NAACP, the mainly African-American civil rights organisation. Whereas it's Kristin Sinema who just is, seems implacable On this issue, I mean, is there anything Democrats can do to these two sort of outliers to say, look, this is just in our party's most basic interest. If the elections are not fair, we're going to keep losing if we allow Republicans to unlevel the playing field.
0: Well, you've captured the frustration of Senate Democrats uh, (laughs) with their hold-down colleagues. Can they be persuaded it, it's really hard to know. One question is whether the very vast For the People Act could be um, narrowed and tailored uh, more specifically in a way that might attract uh, the support or sufficient support of a mansion uh, for some version of voting rights uh, reform. As he's said, he's open to reform of the actual Voting Rights Act. Um, the broader issue here, though, is that even if you get mansion on board, uh, for even a, a, a streamlined voting rights bill, you would still need, Democrats would still need to abolish the filibuster in order to get it through the Senate. And Manchin seems uh, to be uh, stuck with, wants to stick with the filibuster, regardless of his views about voting rights. So even if you could persuade him to come aboard, persuading him to be willing to abolish the filibuster with just Democratic votes. I don't think he's anywhere near that position yet.
1: So spell out for us what the stakes are with this, because lots of people around the world saw Joe Biden win that election and thought, right, he's going to be on course now to do a lot. And he did get a lot done in those first 100 days, this huge COVID relief bill running into uh, you know, just under $2 trillion, uh, what are we to take away from this, that now the Biden juggernaut grinds to a halt because Joe B- um, because Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema are standing in the way? Is Joe Biden not going to be able to get anything done now from here on in?
0: Well, I think uh, on the big ticket items, I'm somewhat doubtful. I think all the eyes, though, are on what we call infrastructure, however defined, I suspect there will be another what we call reconciliation bills. And these are essentially spending bills that can be done and avoid the filibuster.
1: Right, this is important. You've got us to the loophole. This is the one sort of get out of jail card that is available to the president and to Democrats in Congress. This Just explain in really lay terms what, why this, what this loophole does and why it may mean there is, a, there is hope for Biden to get something done.
0: Well what this is is it's a a way for the congress to enact a, a spending bill, a revenue bill that avoids the filibuster. There is an automatic eventual vote, and so you can't block a vote from happening.
1: So what's to stop Biden doing absolutely everything (laughs) under the label, under the wrapper of a reconciliation bill?
0: Well, unfortunately for very ambitious majorities, reconciliation comes with some pretty strict limits that are written into the federal law, the Federal Budget Act law. And that really says that no matter what you put in this bill – Eventually, eventually, it has to be paid for in some way. So if you put a tax cut in, eventually, after a certain window, you have to raise the taxes to get the money back. If you spend a lot, let's say uh, the pandemic relief bill, there is a brand, essentially a new benefit for families with children, but that expires quite quickly because it has to be paid for. So there are limits to what can go into this bill. If you want to mandate, let's say, uh, clean energy standards, that's not going to probably pass muster uh, with the rules of the bill. But a lot can be done in reconciliation, and it's been used by ambitious majorities in the past. uh, And I suspect we'll see at least one more uh, during this Congress. Also, finally, keep in mind Congress will have to pass a big honking bill to fund the government for the next fiscal year. And those spending bills tend to get pretty big and broad. And so I imagine we'll see more Biden priorities put into that bill, because the consequences of not passing the bill is shutting down the government.
1: Okay, so it's it's too early to count him out. But the Biden administration, Joe Biden, will be able to get some things done. But the question, I suppose, beyond just the prospects for this administration, there is a big question there about the Democratic Party. And I've been wondering just listening to you and also just thinking about this, whether a party that includes, on the one hand, Joe Manchin, and yeah, we can chuck in Kristen cinema into that too, on at uh, one end, but then the likes of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Jamal Bowman and Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, other people who are demanding that the filibuster be detonated from a great height – How can they, in a way, these two groups, one saying let's wait for partisanship and I don't want to do anything my Republican colleagues don't want to do, sit in the same party with the likes of AOC and still be one party? So that's
0: the great or the either the great thing of American politics or the death of American uh, political parties is we have two big umbrella parties. And on the Democratic side, it means we have both progressives uh, from the left, as well as the remaining centrists of Joe Manchin and maybe Sinema and a handful of others. And there really is no third party option. And so if you want to win and you want to win the presidency, you have to do it through the Democratic or the Republican Party. And that forces these potentially odd bedfellows to get into the party's same party. And that often yields dissent and cleavages, but it will require them to put aside those differences in order to do anything that approximates the democratic agenda.
1: Yeah. And I suppose Democrats just don't have any kind of leverage over Joe Manchin, because it's not as if if he stepped out of the way a progressive, AOC, Brooklyn-friendly type Democrat <laughs> is about to take his place and get elected in West Virginia. If it's not Joe Manchin, it's probably a Republican in that state, isn't it?
0: Right. And it could well be a very Trumpian Republican who right. might replace uh, a Joe Manchin in the Senate. And so, yes, Democrats are are stuck. Uh, they cannot seemingly live with Joe Manchin, but they certainly can't live without him. And so finding their way, finding a path that may involve having to write laws that entice some Republicans to join them. That's the ultimate challenge here. And to do it while they still have unified party control, which unfortunately for the Democrats doesn't tend to last very long in our electoral system.
1: And there's no real comparable cleavage or split on the Republican side. And they, I suppose, can just sit back and enjoy this spectacle of their opponents being so bitterly divided. And I suppose it's just win-win for them, isn't it? Because either they actually win the Senate, or if they lose, they still win because the filibuster gives them this veto power.
0: Yes, and I think this particular Republican Party, uh, I mean, they have their own sort of internal reckoning yet to come over Donald Trump in 2024. Um, but so long as the party has a relatively limited policy agenda, which of late has been stacking the courts with conservative judges and lowering taxes, they they benefit under a system uh, because that can be done uh, in the Senate pretty easily by majority rule. So they have less of a push from outside Uh, In order to use the levers of of Congress to make policy change. So yes, to some extent, at least in the short term, it's win-win for the Republicans who can sit back and just refuse to cooperate.
1: Yeah, and they're doing exactly that. Sarah, we always ask our guests on the show a what else question. So on something completely different. (laughs) So this week, um, Joe Biden has been traveling the world. He's been in Cornwall in England for the G7 and had a summit meeting uh, with Vladimir Putin in Geneva. Uh, What's the word in Washington? How do people, how do you think he's done in his first foreign trip as president?
0: Well, I would say that there's this, I think, a rough sense that people like the message that, quote unquote, Washington is back, that the U.S. is back to be constructive, collaborative, uh, and to be a, a player uh, and not to be so isolationist. But there's also the sense that the the ship of state is hard to turn and whether or not the the impact of the Trump administration, I think, maybe harder to undo uh, than many people had hoped or expected.
1: Sarah Binder, Professor of Political Science at George Washington University, thanks so much for coming on Politics Weekly Extra.
0: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Right, before I go, I must ask you, our listeners, on days that haven't quite gone to plan, when you're at home alone and there's no one there to judge you, what is your go-to meal that makes you feel better? I must confess that my inner five-year-old is still partial to baked beans on toast, literally the meal I did enjoy as a toddler, and occasionally it comes out. But there is a reason I'm asking you this, and that is because this week, The Guardian launched a new food podcast called Comfort Eating, with our restaurant critic, Grace Dent. Each week, she invites a famous guest to sit down with her and reveal what they really eat when no one's watching. Do make sure to listen to the first episode now. It's with the screenwriter Russell T. Davis as he educates Grace Dent on the joys of Woolworth's pork and egg pies. Just search for Comfort Eating with Grace Dent from The Guardian on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. But that, I'm afraid, is all from me for this week. The producer is Danielle Stevens, and I'm Jonathan Friedland. Please stay safe out there and thanks, as always, for listening.
0: That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrir. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today we're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families.